the day seems long Are trials hard to bear We're tempted to complain To murmur and despair But Christ will soon appear To catch His bride away great message. Amen. Well, let's go ahead. We're still in our series and we're moving along here. Bible truths and we're just considering some Bible truths. Let's go to the book of Genesis again. We're going to be over there kicking things off. And again, we looked at creation a little bit last week and uh, we want to pick up where we left off. We addressed the sixth day a little bit. We talked about how God uh, created the beast, how he created human, humans, uh, in this case, Adam. And uh, we, we noted that, and we talked a little bit about that. We saw that um, in the first chapter, he gives the fact of creation. In the second chapter, he gives the manner of it. And, um, and then we, again, talked a little bit about how he fashioned man of the dust of the ground. And uh, just basically like a sculptor would... Uh, fashion a statue out of clay, it's, you get the impression that God formed man, you know, he just kind of, he did a lot better job than I'd have done, I'll tell you that. Uh, I've done a few clay projects in my day, and if it wouldn't have been for a mom that just loves you that much, they'd have been tossed out a long time ago, and, uh, but uh, boy, God did a great job with that, and uh, we saw the formation of the body, we see Again, the dust of the ground, formed out of the dust of the ground. We saw the gift of the Spirit. We were talking about the Holy Spirit as much as we were the spirit of man, that uh, God-conscious portion. We talked about the soul and how he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That, again, that, that self-consciousness there, the nature, memory, affection, all of those things. And so we learned that man is tripartite. And uh, again, in the, Adam, in the creation there, we saw that he was uh, operating and functioning on all three cylinders, body, soul, and spirit. 
And then when the fall came, we saw that, unfortunately, one of those cylinders got messed up, and uh, he died to, basically to God in a sense. There was no communication between man and God. Uh, that spirit compartment died, and now he's functioning on two or three. And we noted again that man is incomplete. Man is void of something. He's missing something. And that's the, regenerated, uh, the regeneration that God brings in salvation is what he's missing because it makes our spirit alive unto God. We're able to communicate with God as we ought to and have fellowship with God as he intended originally. And so anyway, we noted some of those things. Now, I want to point our, uh, direct our attention now to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And uh, I want to focus on um, the creation of woman here to start with here. The creation of, of, of woman. Let me see, I'm missing, uh, oh, there it is. All right. Okay, so let's go ahead and look there. 127. He says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Excuse me. Excuse me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now I want you to look over chapter 2, verse 21. And again, we're going to get a little bit more information. He's going to fill in the blanks a little bit. Helps to understand a few things here. In chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse uh, 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, uh, we're going to take just a few moments and begin looking at this, and then we're going to move along. In our, uh, eventually, we're going to talk about the seventh day, and I trust that we're going to get and talk about the Sabbath day a little bit. But let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into some things here in the passage and just kind of make a note of a few things along the way. Father, we thank you for this time together. We do ask, Lord, you'd bless it. It's just uh, the, your word, and what a wonderful book it is. What a blessing it is, Father, to be given this book, to have it and hold it in our hands. Lord, we thank you so much for it. We're so unworthy of it. And yet, Lord, you've been so gracious to us. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your family, to be called the sons of God, or to have an eternal home in heaven. Lord, just to have that reservation made, the moment we place our personal faith and trust in you, there are condemnations removed, and we are brought into fellowship with you. Thank you so much for what you've done. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason why Eve, we see Eve being fashioned a little bit differently than Adam. Obviously, she's not being formed, so to speak. At least it's not mentioned quite like that, but what the, the part that comes from, uh, there's a part that comes from Adam. We see that, uh, taking a rib out of Adam. And again, uh, you know, um, it, it basically really points to that relationship that a man and wife ought to have. They're to be one flesh. And that's what God's trying to imply, again, from man comes woman. And as a result of that, they're one. They're, 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 com they're, they're connected somehow. And in this case, in the creation, they literally were part of each other if you will. I mean, you've got Adam and you've got Eve. And as uh, Adam would say, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he, was, he wasn't kidding about that. Now, again, as a man and wife, we're to be one flesh, obviously. And um, in that regard, and their interests, their sympathies, our affections uh, should be together. And in that physical relationship that we enjoy in marriage, uh, basically, it's just pointing to that, the fact that we are to, to, to complement one another, we're to be counterparts for one another, we're to work together. Now, in marriages, it seems more than not, there seems to be somewhat of a competition rather than a completion in many cases. People competing for authority or pe competing for some kind of, um, of, of you know, position or, uh, you know, as we said, authority. That's not supposed to be the case, okay? God has outlined and, and ex explained what his roles and responsibilities are. And if we'll assume the responsibility and role that God has given to us, we'll find that there's harmony in marriage. 
where there becomes a problem in marriage is when one or both find themselves trying to fit into a different role. Can I tell you that one of the great problems we have in our culture and our society today is that those roles have been totally dismantled and, and they've been washed away, so to speak. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, we have seen it and it's in the church. It's so clearly in the church. It's affecting our homes. It's affecting our marriages. It's affecting our children and our futures. That's all there is to it. And people say, well, I know, but you don't understand my situation. I don't have to understand your situation. I'm just saying that there are times where I understand, you know, uh, desperate times require desperate measures. But can I tell you, every situation is not an exception. And unfortunately, we have bought into the idea that everybody has an exception. And unfortunately, again, we have a real problem in our our churches. It's hard. I'm just going to throw it out there. You don't have to agree with it. I don't care. You know what? I'm just going to throw it out there. It's very hard to find even ladies to make meals for people because they're all working. It's hard to be hospitable when you are so busy making money that you can't even invite people over because you're just too busy. I'm just saying we're in a generation where everybody, everybody has to work everybody because you have to have a nice house. You, how dare you let your wife drive a car that's not like last three years old or something? I mean, oh my goodness, if it ever broke down, my goodness, she'd probably die. I get this stuff, you know, I hear guys talking like this and I think sometimes who we trust in, me, myself, and I, or the Lord? I think sometimes we got, we got to be real careful with this. And again, I'm not against, I understand everybody, you know, you do what you got to do. But let me tell you something, we are watching the landscape of our culture and our country changing because we have neglected the roles that God has outlined in the Word of God. People can go ahead and say whatever they want, but when it's all said and done, take mama out of the home and look what's happened in our America. I'm just saying now, again, I I think the proof's in the pudding. I don't even think preachers have to be ashamed anymore. used to be you stand in a pulpit and you preach the Word of God, and people are like, here, let me get a rock and hit him with it. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a stupid preacher. You're an idiot. You don't know the real world, man. Let me tell you what. You look at the real world, and you tell me what the solution to this problem is. It's Jesus. Well, what in the world is Jesus going to do if we neglect his book? I mean, seriously, the reason why people don't come to Christ is because they're, they're hard-hearted and they're walking in darkness. How's coming is the church looks so much like the world? Well, not that. Preacher, that's a different thing there. Is it a different thing? You know, years ago, I, well, I'm not going to go into it. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking this stuff since I was just a young guy. I was a male chauvinist pig then, and I still am, I guess. If that's what the Bible's teaching, then I guess that's what I am. But can I tell you, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's teaching what's best for us. We neglect the Bible in a number of areas where it would be better for us. You know, this take, let's take, for instance, this one, okay? And I got to be careful because I, I got to get to a certain thing before we end tonight. Let's take this one, for instance. Um, dating the unsaved. I'm so sick of hearing dating the unsaved. First of all, that's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach not to date the unsaved. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, can I tell you something? You can be unequally yoked with believers, too. This is is ridiculous. See, we're messing up here today. Well, all I matters is that she's saved. All that matters is that he's saved. Really, is that all that matters in the Bible? Is that really what God says in the Word of God? So she came to Christ when she was three years old, four years old, five years old, ten years old at a vacation Bible school. Hasn't been in church since. And here you are, child of God, you're going out soul winning and you're serious about the things of the Lord. Man, you're going to reform her because she's a Christian, you're a Christian, you're meeting the requirements of the Word of God. No, you're not. And then we wonder why our world falls. You know, I just, I didn't realize, I never, I didn't think she was like that. I had no reason to believe that she would just up and leave me like that. Dude, you ought to wake up to some things. She was never following the word of God to begin with. And if she doesn't love Jesus enough, she will leave you when she gets tired of you too. Do you know what? The reason why I married my wife is because she was a great Christian. 
Not only was she pretty and not only was she kind and not only did she had the best parents in the world. <laughs> That's right. Smart guy, huh? Just redeem myself right there. At least with two people in the whole auditorium, I redeem myself. But let me tell you something. She was, the, she was as good, if not the best Christian I knew. She was real. And I told people this before I ever got married. I said, if my wife did not love me, she would still make a great wife to me because she loves the Lord that much. But I'll tell you what, fellas, if you'd find a girl like that that would love you even when you're unlovable because she loves Jesus enough to obey him, even though you're not worth staying with, you got a good deal. But we don't live like that. We don't choose things like that. We don't follow the Bible that way enough. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I just believed what God's Word taught. And you know what? If you'll believe what God's Word teaches and apply it, you'll get the same results. Oh, there are, all, I know, there's exceptions to every rule we say. I understand that, but why are there so many exceptions today? Why is the divorce rate in the church almost as high as it is in the world? Why is that? What are we not doing we should be doing? Now, again, God made man and woman, and he took that, that, that woman out of man, basically, and he said, listen, you're to, be, you're to focus on oneness and unity. You ought to be working together like a team all the time, in a sense, and not even a team. I mean, you are literally connected. Oneness. I mean, God didn't just give us uh, certain acts to enjoy together as man and wife. He did things the way he did to be a picture of some things. It's unbelievable how we have distorted what God intends. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And Paul, the apostle, turns around and says, we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5. So now we see that the marriage is a, a picture of Christ in the church as well. Now listen, when our marriages aren't what they're supposed to be, who is it that gets the black eye? Jesus does. I mean, we're supposed to be a picture of him in the church. We're supposed to be a light in a dark world. We're supposed to be in a position in our marriages, in our relationships, and that is the most essential relationship, mind you. Well, I'm a good parent at least. Well, you're missing the boat, friend. You need to be a good spouse. And if you're a good spouse, you can be a good parent. Can I tell you what? If you're not a good spouse, you're not as good a parent as you think you are. I don't care if you live with an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. You be the spouse God intends you to be, and it'll be a good testimony to your children. You'll be a good parent. You don't have to have a good husband or good wife to be a good parent, but you have to be a good Christian to be the kind of parent God intends you to be. Adam was not created a baby or, or, or some kind of, uh, I guess, primitive savage. When he was created, he comes, he's full grown. And he's made perfect in intelligence. He's made perfect in knowledge at that point. It's interesting how he named all the animals, isn't it? I mean, you could have done that if he was only 10 years old or 9 years old, probably. He was already created with age. He was created, I mean, he was, the, he was the epitome of evolution. It would be everything that Darwin would hope to arrive at. He would hope that humanity would arrive at Adam. That's where he would want it to, to end, but that's where it began. Everything's been going downhill since. And sadly enough, relationships aren't getting any better either. Because mankind is devolving, not evolving. Think about how the descendants of Adam, how skilled they were in these areas of music, mechanics, or even building. Think about the ark. I mean, it was just uh, back in the 1900s that a ship was made even to the size of the ark. It's amazing to think about. Pre-flood men and women were well advanced. 
You've heard of the lost city of Atlantis, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I have too. I'm not sure that it was, you know, antediluvian, but I, I or, you know, but, but either way, it's, it's okay. But listen, we're not evolving upward, we're evolving downward, if you will. We're devolving. Now again, when mankind was made, both men and women, obviously, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Let's, let's look at what their diets consisted of. You, know, you got a lot of people writing books and things about some of this stuff, you know, and they're, they're you know, they're, they're smart people. And, and this is where they come up with some of these things. You know, you got folks that are, uh, you know, uh, vegetarian and that kind of thing. Well, they, they, a lot of times they go back to the Bible. And they, they, they look at the original situation. And, and so I, I'm not going to argue with people about that at all. But, but I want you to notice this in Genesis 1.29. Look what the Bible says. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. So what is he saying there? Well, it's, it's in the passage. He's saying basically man and animal both were vegetarian. They, they, they ate, you know, green things, things that I never grew up with. And I certainly didn't grow up with that green thing that's about that square. It's called a dollar bill. But anyway, but, but I, my, my mother, she, you know, she did not, my mom did not feed us greens at all. Now, I mean, if there's ever been evidence and proof that you don't have to be, you know, a vegetarian, it's me. I mean, look at it. I mean, it's... You know what I'm saying? There's no green in that. That's all meat and potatoes. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, they were not, they were, they, they were vegetarian early on. Now, after the fall, animals became, as, we, as, as the word is used in, in science class, carnivorous, meat eaters. After the fall. Uh, after the flood, man was permitted to eat flesh. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're Genesis chapter 9. It's after the flood now. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life therein, uh, thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. Now notice how different things are. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So it was the green herb. It was, so to speak, vegetation. Now they can even eat meat. They're just not allowed to drink the blood or have it with the blood, so to speak. So the, everything changed after the flood for mankind. Now again, after the, the uh, fall, animals started eating flesh. After the flood, that's when humans, mankind, started, uh, was permitted to eat it. So we see some of these things early on, okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about the seventh day. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Because we're in the sixth day, and now we're past some of that. Let's go ahead and look at the seventh day a little bit, because this is uh, pretty interesting. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Well, let's look at verse 1 through 3. Let's just look at that. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now when it's talking about God here in the creation, it's talking about the Trinity at work here. And when we think about the Trinity, you think, you know, if you look at the book of Colossians, you find that Christ is viewed as a uh, as creator. And you think to yourself, really? Christ is creator? I thought God was creator. In the beginning, God created. Yeah, but Jesus and God 
and the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, that is, they're, they're the Trinity, all three of them working. Now, many have said, and I think it's pretty good the way they've broken it down. I've read that God the Father created matter. God the Son took that matter and he made the worlds and all that exists upon them. You get what I'm saying? So the matter comes from God the Father. The, whole, the, the Son, he, he forms it, so to speak. He makes the worlds and all that exists. And then the Holy Spirit of God breathes the breath of life into all things that have life. Again, we see the, the, the Trinity at work even in creation. And then as we go through the Word of God, we find things like, uh, let us and let us and let us do this and do that. And, and it's almost as if there's this conversation taking place between the three, and yet they're one. So why did God rest? Why did he rest? Someone says, well, of course he rested because he's just wore out. He's wore out from working. I mean, he's been tearing it up for six straight days. And I mean to tell you, finally, after creating all those things, he's ready for a rest. Well, actually, the Bible makes it pretty clear that he rested because his work was finished. And that's really the only reason ever to quit working. It's when the job's done. Right? I mean, Jesus, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're, they're busy at the work of creation, and all of a sudden, they're resting. Why? Because the work is finished. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us not only was the work finished, but he saw that it was very good. In chapter 1, verse 31, the Bible says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But then all of a sudden, we know that the fall entered. All of a sudden, we have his perfect work being marred by sin. And you know what happened? His Sabbath rest was broken, wasn't it? All of a sudden, he's back at it, working again. He's resuming the work. This time, it's not to continue creation, not the creation of matter, not the creation of things, if you will, but for the purpose of redemption. He's going to redeem man again. So he starts his work of redemption, and he's, he's working to create a new creature. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So he began that work. So here's, he is in creation, creating and working, and then he's resting on that seventh day. But that, that rest, that, that rest is now broken, and he's back at it again because there's work to be done, the work of redemption. That's why he's busy again. So what do we do with this thing called the Sabbath then? Sometimes there's a little confusion there. Turn again to where Genesis chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 3. And notice he uses, notice what he says here about this whole process. He says, again, the, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. I don't see Sabbath yet. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Hmm. He sanctified it. He set it apart as a rest day. Because he goes on to say now, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Again, it's not called a Sabbath day here. And we're told that God blessed it, he sanctified it. What? He set it apart as a rest day. And, of course, we noted already that sin disrupted that rest. Now, where in the world do we find this word Sabbath, then? Because we usually associate it with the rest in chapter uh, 1, uh, in chapter 2, or chapter two of, of Genesis. Well, we find the first mention of this Sabbath in Exodus chapter 16. Turn over there. Genesis, Exodus chapter 16. And let's begin in verse 23. 
And he said unto them, chapter 16, verse 23 of Exodus. And he said unto them, this is that which the Lord hath said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which ye will bake today, and seethe that ye will seethe, and that which remaineth overlay, uh, overlay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is this, uh, a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Six days ye shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall none uh, be none. Now, this Sabbath now is being connected with to this, you know, the, the, the gathering of manna, right? We know that the children of Israel have, have been delivered out of Egypt, and here they are. They're, they need some food, and so God's providing them with manna. And in association with this manna now comes this word Sabbath. He says, six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jew. He's talking to Israel now. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, we're going to see the law being given to the children of Israel. And God's going to make it perfectly clear that they're to keep this Sabbath. Notice what he says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. He says, for in six days the Lord hath made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now notice how he's setting this up. Because you're going to understand that this chapter is where he presents the law now to the Israelites. This is the law, and he's going to give them the law. And in it, he's setting it all up with this right off the bat. And what we're going to find is that this is a sign, the Sabbath, is a sign to Israel of the Mosaic Covenant. It's something between them and God. Look at chapter 31 of Exodus. The law is being given in chapter 20, and he kicks it off by talking about the Sabbath. And he begins to give them all of these laws. And then he, he's going to make sure it's very clear that for you guys, this is going to be important. This Sabbath is so essential for you. Notice what he says in chapter 31 of Exodus, verse 13. He says, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death, for whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty clear that God's talking to a specific people here. And who is he talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's not, there's nothing here that's talking to the church. It's not talking to you and me at all. Matter of fact, if I don't keep the Sabbath, I don't have to worry about dying. Do you? It's the last time you died for not keeping the Sabbath. You haven't yet. See, you're still here. But there's a law in Israel that they weren't permitted to mess with the Sabbath. They couldn't work on the Sabbath. They had to rest on the Sabbath. This was something that was between them and God. And it's important to understand that. Look, if you would, and um, let's turn to um, Ezekiel chapter 20. Yeah, this is, it's, that's a good one, huh? Got it? It's to the right. I helped you out, didn't I? Ezekiel chapter 20. I'll tell you what, let's start in verse... Uh, yeah, let's stay in order. Let's go to verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. And we'll look at verse 13 as well. 
Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them. Who, who's he given, again, who's he referring to and who is the prophet speaking of? He's not talking about the church here. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jew. And he says over here, he says, and I gave them my statutes and showed them, let's see, wait, I, I think I just jumped it. Verse 12, moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Again, he's even making it more clear now. They walk not in my statutes and they despise my judgments, which, uh, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths, they greatly polluted then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Look at verses 19 through 21. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And hollow my Sabbaths. And they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Again, who's the sign between? It's between the Jew and God, or Israel and God, specifically. So the Sabbath day then belongs to the Jew alone. It's not binding on the Gentile. You say, well, I don't know about that. It's not binding on the world. It's not binding on us. It's not binding on the Christian. At least that's not what we're seeing in Scripture. So far, the Sabbath is focused on the Jew between God and the, and, and the Jewish people and Israel, if you will. Now, after the resurrection, Christ and his disciples never met on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week. Look, if you would, in John chapter 20, verse 1. John chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to see right off the bat that Christ himself rose from the dead. Notice what happens here and when it was. The Bible tells us in John 20, verse 1, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, which it was yet dark, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So right off the bat, we kick things off with the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection's taking place on the first day of the week. That's pretty significant. It's very significant. Look in John chapter 20 again, verse 19 this time. <clears throat> then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. I think it's interesting, again, they're assembled on the first day of the week. Look at chapter 20 of book Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread... Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. That's a Baptist right there. We know he's Baptist. Notice the first day of the week again. They're gathered together. There's preaching taking place. The Christians are together on the first day of the week. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The Bible says in chapter 16, verse 2, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Even the giving is taken on the first day of the week. <clears throat> the Christian, after the resurrection, met on the first day of the week. Now let me just say this. <clears throat> People say, well, yeah, but he talks about the Sabbath all the time in the New Testament. You have to define the New Testament. 
What is the New Testament? According to the book of Hebrews, the death of the testator has to take place before the new covenant's put put uh, in place, if you will. It wasn't until Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. It wasn't until that blood was shed that the new covenant, the new testament, was put into place. Throughout the entire, it's virtually through the whole Gospels, you're still in the Old Testament. So when you see all this Sabbath taking place, it's not the church, it's the Jew being addressed and dealt with. It, we're, still dealing with Christ, we're still dealing with God and his people Israel. And remember what the goal was. The goal was that they would ultimately receive and accept Christ as Messiah so that he would then come and establish his kingdom on earth. But it didn't happen. They rejected him. Crucify him, they said. Crucify him. And they did. We see in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, we see, excuse me, Stephen now preaching again to the council, begging them to recognize the mistake they've made, to realize that Christ is Messiah, that they need only to trust and receive him, and the kingdom will be ushered in. And once again, they reject the gospel message. They reject the king and the kingdom, and they kill the messenger. And then we see Philip in chapter 8 preaching a revival in Samaria. That's an interesting truth because Samaritans were half Assyrian and half Jew. They were kind of like Gentiles and Jew mix. What's going on? We see a transition from the Jew to the Gentile in the book of Acts. We have a New Testament as of the death of the testator. That New Testament, after Christ is resurrected, he resurrects on the first day of the week. The church begins meeting on the first day of the week. The disciples are meeting on the first day of the week. What about all those times they go into the synagogue? They're going in there, and what are they doing? They're preaching the truth, the resurrected Christ. Yeah, they went to church on the Sabbath. They went into those synagogues, and what did they do? They preached Christ. They didn't go there to worship him as the church. They went there to win them to Christ. Then they met on the first day of the week. So therefore, I believe it's pretty clear scripturally that the first day of the week is the day that we're to observe for rest and worship by the Christian church. So real quickly, let's run through it as we kind of start closing down a little bit. Christ rose... From the dead on the first day of the week. The Bible says on the morrow after the Sabbath. That's, that's when they, that he rose. Pentecost, the empowering of the church fell on the first day of the week. The Jewish Sabbath then links man with the Old Testament or what might be called the Old Dispensation, whereas the first day of the week links man to the new. And by the way, the only commandment not restated in the New Testament, really the only one that's not restated is the fourth commandment, which is regarding the Sabbath. Turn to Romans chapter 13. We're we're coming in for a landing here. We're getting there. We're We're not too far off here. Romans chapter 13. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 13. And again, we're going to see that in the New Testament, we're going to see, especially these Pauline epistles, that Paul is going to restate the Ten Commandments somehow, some way. Not every time are they stated exactly like they are in the Old Testament or under the law in Exodus uh, chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But we're going to see that they are restated. Now notice what he says in Romans 13, because here he literally states a number of them right in a row. <clears throat> he says in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Now again, remember how the Lord had some commandments, two great commandments, okay? But now watch this. He even gets really specific here. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. 
Watch, for this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Do you get what's going on? He's restating the commands that were given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are the same commandments, by the way. What's taking place is that earlier on, he gave them to them. But remember what happened? They, re- they would not go into the promised land, so they wandered for 40 years. So he restates those commands again in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Just wants to make it clear what he expects of them. Notice 1 Timothy 1.8. Again, the apostle Paul is going to not necessarily use the same format that we read, just like we read there. That was clear. I mean, boom, 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 you know. But he's going to imply, by the way, he, the things he requires and what God says we're to do, it's right there. Those commandments are being restated again and again in the New Testament. And here in 1 Timothy, we're going to note that to be the case again. Chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 8. The Bible says... <clears throat> But we know that the law is good if any man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy, profane, and murders, and fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, the perjurer of person, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now he's going to go on here and he's listing some things. He's pointing out some of these, and just somebody says, well, there you see it. There it is. They've got some of those commands there. He may not be saying exactly, hold on. What's, there's something missing here along the way. In this entire New Testament, when we read through about the church, we never hear about the Sabbath. Why is it we don't hear about the Sabbath when we go to Paul's writings? Oh, he's stating things. He's making it clear that in Romans that that. Some of those commands have been transferred over that we're still to be careful. The moral law still exists. You don't have a right to go do whatever you please, however you want, just because you claim grace. As they often say, grace is not a license to sin. So what's going on? Why is it we don't read about one thing, the fourth commandment? Why is it? Because it doesn't apply to the church. It's not for you and I. We meet on the first day of the week. And it's interesting, that first day of the week. Matter of fact, Paul, the apostle in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, and we're not going to look at it, but he, he even basically reminds us, don't, don't allow people to judge you uh, in respect of Sabbath days. Huh? We're just going to find is, is that the Sabbath doesn't belong to the church. The Sabbath belongs to the Jew. It's not restated in the New Testament for the church. You don't see it. You, you never read about it. it's called the Lord's Day. Remember over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, John said. It's his day. You know, really, it's, it's not called a rest day. It's not a rest day for the believer. It's a day to be filled with worship, with teaching and preaching of the Word of God. It's his day. That's really what it is. It's his day. It's the Lord's day. It's not yours or mine to do with as we please. Well, I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to stay home with my family. I'm going to just watch my favorite TV show with the fam. And sadly enough, that's happening across our country. There are churches that have ceased to have their Sunday night services in lieu of family time. What are we doing for family time? I'm often amazed. And it it sounds really, I mean, it sounds wonderful. Family time. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's the only time you could ever be with your families on Sunday night during church. So we better cancel it so that our families are stronger. What's happening to our families then? If we're supposed to be so strong now, most churches have dumped their Wednesday nights and their even their Sunday nights. And now maybe they might have a little bit of a Bible study here or there or go into some people's homes and everybody gets a chance to share their feelings and all that good stuff. And all along, the Word of God's still there. And nobody seems to care what this says. It's His day. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's His. I don't have to keep the Sabbath to be right with God. 
That's for the Jew. But I do need to observe the Lord's day. And I need to worship him on that day. And I need to listen to him on that day. And I need to be preached to and learn the word of God. I need to make it his day and really allow it to saturate my soul with spiritual things. It's funny how the world, and i got to close, but it's funny how the world has turned Sunday into the biggest sports day in America. You ever notice that? Kids, everybody wants to play baseball on Sundays now. All the, I mean, I understand. It used to be at least if there was a game on Sunday, it was in the middle of the day. You ever notice that? It used to be at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, you played your game, and then, guess what? You, you're out. Man, they play all day. They got tournaments everywhere across this country. Kids are tied up all the time. Man, the devils, he's, he's pretty slick. <clears throat> but remember, that Sabbath is for the Jew. It's between God and them. But the Lord's day is a day we ought to observe. And it is. It's his day. He's been good to us, hasn't he? And you know, I'm preaching to the choir, of course, because you're always there on Sundays. But you know what? It's good to be reminded, isn't it? It's good to be reminded. He's been good to us. Boy, I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but that's really the reason I was serving. Oh, yeah, I mean, he saved my soul, but that's just, he's so good to me that way, you know. But he's good to me all the time. There are times that life gets a little tricky. Situations and circumstances can make it, I mean, just really slow you down and weigh you down. Really can. But you know, if we'll slow down enough, even in the midst of those times, really let the Lord speak to us and just give him a chance, he'll come through. He always does, doesn't he? He'll comfort us. He'll bring us strength, courage, direction, guidance, and leadership. He's so good to us. I don't know what you're going through. You may be going through a pretty rough time tonight. And you know the truth is is that nobody's going to understand your rough time like you do. We want people to understand it, but they don't. Some people kind of think, well, it's no big deal. Suck it up, buttercup. Quit whining, quit complaining. Everybody's got problems. I know somebody you can take your cares to, though. And he won't, he won't be upset with you at all. He'll be glad to hear from you. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time we've had in your word. Thank you for the simplicity of it. And again, Lord, it's, uh, it's great to know you. We're blessed. Doesn't mean that you spare us from all the hurts and heartaches that the world offers and the situation we face. I mean, there's, there's still trouble as the sparks fly upward. You can't live in this world righteously. You can't live in a world trying to live clean and pure and not be faced with battle after battle. And Lord, the devil's fighting us and he's going to use our bodies against us just like he did with Job to try to discourage us and even get us to ultimately shake our fist at you, Lord. May we be faithful like Job. May we stand the test of time. Father, thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. We're so grateful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.